Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, it is indeed a privilege to open up His book and hear from Him and see what He has to say. And this morning I want to talk to you about one of the most important subjects we could ever as a church address. It's an issue that I have to face and deal with every single day of my life. It comes up in every single, single counseling situation. And without it, our Christian lives become, become hard and, and drudgerous and, and dry and anemic and calloused and, and dutiful. It consumed the preaching of Moses and the prophets. It consumed the preaching of John the Baptist and it was the message of Jesus himself. It's essential to salvation and it's also the key to growing in the Christian life. You know what it is? It's on the front of your bulletin. It's a topic of repentance. It's a wonderful doctrine, repentance is, and we need repentance. And if you notice this morning in the worship time, there was this, there was this thread sort of woven throughout all the songs about the, about the holiness and the greatness of God. And, and as we begin to see the holiness of God, we begin to see ourselves as, as little in front of Him. And it's sort of like the closer you get to Mount Rushmore, the bigger the heads become. The more you see the holiness of God, the more you see your sin. And the more there is the need for us to come before God and ask Him to help us to cleanse ourselves from it. We need repentance because too often we're easily entangled with our sin. Too often our hearts are like gunpowder to sin's touch. Too often we leave our cars running outside sin's door for a quick getaway. How often we study and meditate so that we might figure out how to commit a sin secretly and quietly. How often are we more eager to commit a sin than to resist it? How often are we engaged in worship and prayer to God and then be enticed to sin? How many times do we remember our previous life of sin and instead of driving us to humiliation and, and, and dependence upon God, it stirs up within us excitement to continue in corruption? How often do we commit so great a sin on such a small temptation? How little are we engaged in prayer, fighting and venting our hearts before God, asking Him to deliver us from those corruptions? And how often do we care more about our sin that it was discovered by men than it offended a holy God? We need repentance. And what I want to do this morning is unpack repentance for you. And I want to show you the liberty. I want to liberate you this morning. I want to show you the joy that comes from having a heart that's right with God, that the sin that so easily entangles us. I mean, how many times have we sat there with our, with our tear-soaked Bible, with our, with our head in our hands, crying out, God, I was here two weeks ago. And I prayed that you would deliver me, and I prayed that you would, would break this pattern of sin in my life, and here I am again. How many times have we sat there and said, Lord, I don't think I'm ever going to change. If you're in Christ, what you want is repentance. And what I want to do for this morning is, is open your heart to what God's Word says about it. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But there's two dangers as we come to the topic of repentance. Number one is that you would despise the doctrine of repentance. If you walked in this morning and thought, oh no, repentance. Your soul is in grave danger because repentance is the only thing that brings you close to the intimacy of the God that redeemed you and saved you. That's a danger. You want to come this morning and you want to hear a message about how to rid your soul of sin. There's a second danger, and that's misunderstanding repentance. Thinking that you've repented when actually you haven't. For example, there's a number of things that people might say, yes, this is an evidence of genuine repentance when it truly is not and their hearts are deceived. For example, visible morality. 
A lot of times we think because I have an external coherence and, and adherence to uh, visible morality that I'm genuinely repentant. But 1 Samuel 16 says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks where? In the heart. You might think, well, I have a knowledge of the Bible regarding sin, that I know what the Bible says about it, but simply knowing what sin and repentance are doesn't mean that you have genuinely repented because there's one more theologically orthodox than you, namely the enemy of our souls, the devil. So just a knowledge of what sin is is not enough. A form of religion is not enough. Having churchianity, going to church, going through the motions, singing the songs, giving in the offering, all of those things don't evidence a transformation in the heart because Paul describes those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. You might be eminently gifted. You might be able to come. You might be able to preach. You might be able to pray. You might be able to sing. But even Judas himself could do all that. And yet Jesus said he had a devil. You might be even convicted about your sin. You might say, my sin is weighing so heavy down upon me. And I hate that. And I'm burdened and I'm frustrated. But being sorry for sin is the same fate of everyone who occupies hell. They're sorry because of the consequences of their sin. So just being convicted about sin, just having a knowledge of the Bible, just having some visible morality is no indication that genuine repentance has occurred. And what I want to do here this morning is I want to put myself next to you and I want to open the Word of God and I want us to measure ourselves through the grid and the filter of Scripture. And I want us to measure our walk with God and see if we are truly repentant people. And do we understand repentance? And is our life a continual purging from sin and growing in Christ-likeness? That's what I want to do this morning. And it's especially dangerous, though, that before we enter into this, because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that there are two kinds of sorrows. There's a sorrow that is a remorse that leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7. But there is a sorrow and a remorse that leads to repentance and to life. And Paul is very clear in 2 Corinthians 13 that we have to test ourselves to see if God is at work in our hearts, to see if He's moving in our hearts and bringing us to repentance. And my question for you is this. Can you be sure that you've genuinely repented? Repentance comes up a lot in our sermons, in our discussions, and it's a good thing. And I want to do this morning is unpack it for you. So this is what I want to do. Three things this morning. I want to define repentance. I want to explain repentance. And then I want to illustrate it for you. I want to define it, explain it, and illustrate it. Now, let me just, if, if you've got a pen and you want to write this down, here's a definition of repentance, both from the Old and the New Testament. And I'll read it very slowly and carefully. Repentance, the word actually means to have a change of mind. It's a change of mind. And when I use the word mind, I mean mission control central of your heart your whole being, your whole everything, a change of your mind to a proper way of thinking that results in a proper way of living. Let me read that again. It's a change of mind to a proper way of thinking that results in a proper way of living before God and man. Now let me show this to you. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 talks about a change of mind, having a change of heart, and then a life that flows as a result of that. I want to show you this from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But then he tells the Ephesians in 4.20, But you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. What's the truth? Verse 22, here it is. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now look up for just a second. If I would illustrate repentance by me, the the picture that he gives here is a man that is walking in sin. He's walking in the direction of sin. And there's three uh, parts to the equation. He has to, number one, stop sinning. Number two, he has to be renewed in the spirit of his mind. And number three, he has to start obeying. Now, the difference is, if, if I'm, it's not enough just to stop sinning. If I'm sinning and I'm walking in sin and then I stop, I'm still faced towards sin, right? I haven't changed. On the contrary, what needs to happen is a total transformation, a, whole, a 180 degree turn. And then, it's not enough to just do that. What I need to do is replace those sinful steps with holy and righteous patterns. That's the essence of repentance. That's what it means. And Paul, what he does is give us some examples. You say, okay, I'm struggling with lying. Well, what's my, that's, I need to put off lying. But what do I need to put on? Talk to me. Truth. Look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you. You say, okay, I'm a thief. And I have a problem stealing. Now, here's a thief. He's walking in his sin, okay? I went that way. He's walking in his sin. And he says, I need to stop stealing. But that doesn't mean he's no longer a thief. It just means he's in between jobs, right? (laughs) Isn't that true? It's just a matter of time before he starts again. What he needs to do, the corresponding put on, if he's taking from people, if he's stealing from people for his own selfish aggrandizement, what does he need to do? Verse 28. Give. You got it. Let no unwholesome, uh, excuse me, verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather he must labor. He's got to go to work. Let the bum get a job. Performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with him who has need. You say, I have a problem with speech. I come home and I yell at my wife. I yell at my kids. I have a problem at work with my speech. What do I do? Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word unwholesome there, just so you know, is the picture of a guy with a sledgehammer. And he takes the sledgehammer and he smashes a building. That's the picture. Let no smashing, tearing down word come out of your mouth. On the other hand, look at what he says. Only such a word as is good for edification. You know what edification means? Building up. Don't tear down the person, but speak only those words that build up the person so that it may give him grace and it might be timely for the need of the moment. And you can go on. But do you see that repentance is not just stopping sin? Repentance is a change of mind, a renewing of your mind, and a walking after God. That's what I mean by repentance. That's what the Bible says is genuine repentance. And what I want to do this morning is I want to illustrate this to you from probably the best text in the entire Bible on repentance, Psalm 51. Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 51. David 
is a man after what? God's own heart. He loves God. He walks after God. He follows God. He wrote, he wrote so many of the Psalms. This is a Psalm that he probably never dreamed he'd write. Look at what it says in the subscript there. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba. Now I think you know the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's at home. David's at home and Israel's at war. And Joab, his general, is fighting for him. And David wakes up from a nap in the evening. I think that's interesting. In the evening. And then he walks on his rooftop. You know, folks, not a lot of good things happen on king's rooftops in the Bible. But here's David, and he's just strolling along. And what's he see? Oh, there's a woman bathing. Now, you can't always help what you see, right? But you can help what you do when you see it. And what does David do? Does he say, no, no, purity conference, um, no. Is that what he does? No. He says, who's that girl? And he, says, and he pulls his, his uh, uh, people with him and says, hey, go get her and bring her up here because I want her. And he brings her up to his bed and he sleeps with her. You know what she says? David, I'm pregnant. David's like, no. He says, okay, I got an idea. Instead of confessing, instead of repenting before God, he says, okay, this is what I'll do. The guy that's out fighting in my battle, Uriah, I'm going to bring him home. And I'm going to tell him, you know, go home. You know, you've been fighting hard. You know, go home. You know, have something to drink, eat, sleep with your wife, um, and go back to battle. And all of a sudden now, what will happen is, is Uriah will think that that's his baby. And all of a sudden, his sin is covered up. And so he calls Uriah. Uriah comes home, and, and he, puts him on the, uh, he takes him into the palace and says, you've been fighting good. You need to go home and sleep with your wife. And he says, how could I ever do this, such a thing to my king? I mean, my, my nation is fighting out there, and they're not, they're not home with their wives, and they're not eating this great food and sleeping in a warm bed. No, I'm not going to do that. And the man sleeps. He spends the night with the servants outside the king's house. What a noble man. And David says, okay. You want to fight? You want to be noble? He takes his pen out and he writes a decree. And he signs it up and gives it to Uriah, and Uriah takes it back to Joab. You know what the decree says? He opens it up. When they're all fighting, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. And then I want you to sound the trumpet, and I want everybody to retreat except Uriah. Everybody backs up. Uriah gets wiped out. Fine. You don't want to be an be a, a accomplice in covering up my sin, I'll kill you. This is wicked. This is adultery. This is murder. This is a man after God's own heart. Well, about a year later, Nathan the prophet comes. About a year later, Nathan the prophet comes and says, King, I want to talk to you. Sure, what's up? I got a story to tell you. There's a rich guy, and he had all this sheep in the world. He had everything he wanted. And then there was this poor guy, and he had one sheep. He had this little lamb. And he took the lamb into his house, and it was a lamb for his kids. It was like a pet for them. And he took it in, and they groomed it, and they cared for it, and, and they loved it like one of their own. And this rich guy had a visitor come one day to visit him. And instead of taking from the abundance and the wealth of his resources, David, he took this guy's lamb, his only lamb, and he killed him so that he could feed his guest. 
What do you think about that, David? Oh, that man deserves to die. Yeah, David, that's you. That's you. That's what you've done. And David, light goes on. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And what follows is Psalm 51. That's the context with which we come to our psalm this morning. And notice the first thing that it says for the choir director. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I want my sin on the screen. Right? I don't know that I want my sin and my repentance. I I, I don't know that if I would want to turn around and see there's my sin in front of all of you for you to sing about personally. But this is interesting because David's a man after God's own heart. And what makes a man, a person who's a man after God's own heart, is not that they're perfect, but they have a Godward direction. Because they, when they sin, they know how to repent. And here David isn't a man of God after God's own heart by his example. He's a man after God's own heart by his repentance. And what he does for us is identify with us, doesn't he? Does he identify with us? I mean, um, Christ can model how not to sin. Isn't that true? But he's, he can't show us how to repent. And so God is gracious to us, isn't he? And he gives us David, Psalm 51. And what I want you to do this morning is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a little inventory of my life. I'm going to look, and I'm going to see if this is how I deal with sin. We're going to look at the characteristics of humble, true repentance this morning. And these, by the way, are characteristics for everybody. These are mainly for a believer. But if you're not in Christ this morning and you've come, this is where you need to come to. Repentance is for all. Number one, true repentance appeals to God's character. It appeals to God's character. Look at verse 1. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. First thing he appeals to is God's grace. He says, Be gracious to me, O God. God's grace is his unmerited favor towards an undeserving sinner. He says, God, I've sinned against you, and, and what I'm coming to you for is what I don't deserve. I'm coming and I'm appealing to your character. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your love, but I need it desperately. And if you don't give it, it's not going to happen. If you don't work, and, and if it's not you that, that I'm, that I'm going to appeal to for my help, I'll die. I need grace. I need grace. Then he says, Loving kindness. According to your loving kindness. This is a wonderful phrase. It's two words mixed together. Love and kindness sort of woven together to give us the theme of mercy. Mercy is withholding from us what we deserve. And grace is giving to us what we don't deserve. And so you have two sides of the same coin. He says, God, I've sinned against you and I don't want you to give me what I deserve. See it? but I want you to give me what I don't deserve. And I know that it's not dependent on what I've done. I'm not coming here and parading around my good works and say, you know, Lord, I'm pretty good. You should, you, know, you should feel pretty good about me. He says, Lord, I am the worst, and I need your grace, and I need your help, and I need it now. And then he says, verse 1, according to the greatness of your compassion. And I love the superlative on greatness. He says, according to how great and abundant your compassion is. Because it's going to take a lot of compassion to cover the mound of sin that I have. And so I'm appealing to you, God, and I need you. I'm asking you for pity. I'm asking you to look at my deplorable condition, and I'm asking you to see that I am wretched. I need your help. It's appealing to God's character. But there's a couple of characteristics of God that are in this text that may not be as obvious. Look at verse 1. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
you say, what's a transgression? Transgress against what? Talk to me. It's against the law, right? I've broken your law. What is the law? The law is a reflection of God's what? Holiness. It's a reflection of his holiness. And what he's saying, God, is I've violated you. I've violated your holiness. And the way that your holiness is revealed to me is in your law. And so I've violated your law. I've violated you. And so he's appealing to God's holiness. He's saying, don't let me be consumed. Look at verse 4. Against you and you only I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's appealing to his omnipresence. He's saying, God, you're here. And when I sin, and when you sin, beloved, it's as if we have walked into the very throne room of God and committed the act right there. That's how serious it is. Because God is everywhere. And when we sin, we're doing it in front of his face. And what David is saying is, you know what? I've rejected the presence of of God. I acted as if he wasn't there. I was a practical atheist. And now what I'm doing is I'm coming to God and saying, God, you've got to help And he's also appealing, I think, here to the immutability of God, the unchanging character of God. He's saying, I'm fickle, I'm wayward, and I'm trusting that you're not going to be to me what I was to you. Because I can appeal for your grace, and I can appeal for your compassion, and I can appeal for your loving kindness, and I can appeal to your holiness and your omnipresence, but let me tell you something, if you ever change, God, I am devoured and consumed. If you treat me like I treat you, it's over. So he falls on the ground, and cries out for the mercy of God. And you see, what you see in this text is David's view of God just swelling, just growing, growing and growing. And God is glorified in our repentance because it puts him on display, because we say, Lord, I violated you, and now what I want you to do is come down, I want you to help me, and I want you to be the one who's on display in my life. That's what's happening. Number two, true repentance accepts personal responsibility. True repentance accepts personal responsibility. Responsibility. Look at verse 2. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David's accepting responsibility, he's owning up to his sin. And I think it's very interesting because in the world, there's this idea that truth is relative, that it really doesn't matter that, that I make up my own ethical standards and you make up yours and, and whatever's acceptable to everybody, that's the norm and we'll all follow that and as that consistently evolves, then we'll just adjust to that. No. What he's saying here is that truth is truth and that I've violated the truth. But that's not, that's not common in the world. And sadly, that idea starts to pervade in the church. Let me read you a quote from a man named Robert Schuller. He said this, The most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I'm unworthy. I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst. For once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can ever really honestly accept the grace of God offered in Christ. What? I can't accept grace until if I acknowledge that I'm a sinner? This is what he says. Too many prayers of confession and repentance have been destructive to the emotional health of Christians by feeding their sense of non-worth. By nature, we are fearful, not bad. Label it a negative self-image, but do not say that the central core of the human soul is wickedness. If this were so, then truly the human being is totally depraved. He's absolutely right about the last part. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And what David says is, that's me. In 20 times in seven verses, he claims personal responsibility for his actions. Look at what he says. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin, it's ever before me. I see it, I recognize it, and I own it. And against you, you I have sinned. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. And the whole rest of the psalm, verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me. I need cleansing. And the whole rest of the psalm, he says, it's all about me. Now, verse 14 says, look at what he says. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. What's he guilty of? The blood of Uriah. He's not coming and saying, Lord, I just want to pray for the missionaries. And I want to pray for my job, my health, that I get accepted to that school, and confess to you all my sins. Amen. That's not what's happening. What he's doing is saying, God, I am guilty of the blood of this man. And I have violated you, and I've sinned against you, and I've broken your law, and, I, and I've, I've crushed this woman and her husband. I've named my sin specifically. True repentance names your sin. We don't give fair names to foul sins. We call them what they are. And in verse 4, notice he says, ultimately, it's not against Uriah. Ultimately, it's not against Bathsheba. Verse 4, look at what he says. Against you, and you only, I have sinned. Now, our sin may affect other people, but the reality is, is that our sin is directly an offense against God. Ultimately. Yeah, sure, people might feel the consequences of your sin, but your sin and my sin is all against God. And beloved, we have to accept responsibility. God's not at fault. Other people aren't at fault. James 1 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, there's a, there's a picture of a baby being delivered. It brings forth death. He says, don't be deceived about that. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Remember that? You know, they both blow it. God comes knocking. Adam, let's go outside. I'll talk to you. And who does he blame? Hmm? No, he blames God. It was the woman you gave me. Right? Okay, let's talk to the woman. Woman, what's wrong? It's the snake that you put in the garden. And you put the tree. I mean, do you see what's happening here? They're shifting the blame. They're shifting the, the, the personal responsibility. They're, they might be saying stuff like, oh, you know, it was a mistake. You know, I mean, we're all human. I mean, God expects me to act like a fallen creature. He's okay with that. You know, really. And I hear that in counseling a lot. Just, just to be personal for a second. I hear that a lot in counseling. Well, you know what he did and she did is this and this and this and this. And I, well, time out, time out. Hold on, hold on here. Hold on. Tell me about you. Well, I sinned because he did this and he did this and he did this. No, 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 no. You don't get the point. And the point is this, that true repentance, beloved, is something that we acknowledge in our own, that we have blown it before God and that there's no one else standing there. We're not looking at anybody else and we're saying, God, it's just between me and you. It's just between me and you. It's back to my own independent, dependent relationship upon Christ. And the root of the problem is verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
and in sin my mother conceived me. I want you to be careful to catch this. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And so do I. It's not as if our environment has affected us and uh, we have just been pressed into this mold where now we're sinning. No, it is from the outflow of our heart, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, that all of the evil deeds come. Guard your heart with all diligence, Proverbs said, for from it flow the springs of life. The whole issue is the heart. And what happens here is David says, it's my heart and, and I've been a sinful creature since I was born. The moment I was born, he's not talking about you know, his mother you know, saying, well, you know, she was sinful when she conceived me. That's not the point. The point was, is from the moment of inception, I was sinful. And the reason that you see what you see, God, when you look at me is because I'm a sinner. That's the problem. The problem is not this person. The problem's not my wife. The problem's not my job. The problem's not my boss. The problem's not my trials. The problem is me. And so look at what he says in verse 7. He says, I want you to purify me. I want you to purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Just a heads up on hyssop. Hyssop is that, that, that plant that was made into a branch, you remember? When the Passover lamb was sacrificed and they dipped the blood, uh, the, the hyssop into the blood and then they smeared it on the lentils of the house. And what David is saying here, I want you to take that and I want that, inward, I want that outward symbol to be an inward reality in my life. I want you to take it and I want you to cleanse me. I want you to pass over my sin. I need it. Cleanse me. Number three, true repentance appeals to God's character. It accepts personal responsibility for its actions. But number three, it alters the inner man. And I love this. Verse six, it alters the inner man. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Genuine repentance is an issue of the heart. And when transformation is going to occur, it's going to occur from within where the, the, where the man really lives. And he's, what he's saying here is God... I have sinned against you hard. And the reason for my sin is because of my heart sinful condition. So what I want you to do, God, I want you to reach down where nobody else can reach and where nobody else can see. And I want you to do a work there where you transform me. I want you to reach in and change me from within. Because I could trace down all these, you know, these symptoms out here. But what you really want is my heart. And so what I want you to do in my heart is I want you to take truth and I want you to smash it in my heart and I want you to cleanse me and I want you to take the scouring pad out and I want you to rub away the sin with the word of God and I want you to just cleanse me inside, in the hidden part where no one else can see. It's a commitment to make your life match the word of God. And so true repentance is never divorced from a careful study of scripture. And true repentance is never more real than when you're face down crying in your Bible. 1 Peter 2, Therefore put aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And I said to you last time, and I say again, what you are on your knees before God when knowing is, no one is looking is all that you are and nothing else. And you can deceive everyone else. You can deceive me. You can deceive your small group leader. You can deceive your Sunday school teacher but you'll never deceive God. Number four, true repentance activates grace. It activates grace. And let me tell you what I mean by this. Let me give you a heads up so I can sort of give you a running start into the text. What I mean by grace is God's unmerited favor towards his undeserving creation. And that is activated when I repent. That is what I'm going after. 
And what I, what I, want, I just want to back up for a second and say this. That a, lot, a lot of times, even the passage that Jack read this morning, the idea of grace carries with it the idea of enablement or power. That if God gives me the grace to do this or to do that, that, that that's what we're talking about. So, so grace, then, is not so much a thing as it is a funnel or it is a channel or it is a means by which God's enablement comes to us. That's what I mean by that. For example, we're saved by grace, right? I'm saved by the means of God's grace through which he imparts to me the righteousness of Jesus, through which he imparts to me faith, through which he gives me repentance, through which all of these things come to me. It's all about him. That's the essence of grace. Grace is not so much a thing and the enablement itself, but the conduit through which those resources come. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. He pours his resources into our lives to enable us to live in a way that's pleasing to him. So when we are acting independently of God, we've cut ourselves off from those resources. Because he supplied us all that we need. That's why Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, picture me with this cup. It's a little cup, styrofoam cup. This is my Christian life. And picture me standing under a waterfall. And I'm standing there, and, and when I'm living the life that God wants me to live, and his waterfall is the resources that flow down and absolutely overwhelm and smother me, this cup is, is consumed, right? This cup is, is not only is it full, but it's overflowing, and it's, and it's abounding, and, and all of the God's resources are coming into me, and they're flowing out of me, and it, it exemplifies itself in my life. And a lot of people think that the Christian life is like this, that when I'm dry spiritually, that the water's not flowing anymore. That I'm kind of like, hey, what's going on? I'm kind of empty here. That's not true. The truth is, is I'm standing under the waterfall, and when I sin, I take the cup, and I turn it upside down. The resources are constantly flowing. They're constantly coming to me, and they're available. But what's happened? I've positioned myself in such a way that I'm no longer available to receive those resources. And now his resources are just repelling off of me, just bouncing off. I've cut myself off. When I sin against God, I've just cut myself off. And so if I'm going to come to him and I'm going to be what he wants me to be, then I'm standing under the same waterfall and I've got to repent. Remember the, the 180? I've got to repent. And I turn myself back up. And I say, God, you have to give me your resources again. And when I've sinned, I've cut myself off from those resources. I've sinned and I've blown it. I've acted independently of you, I've acted like I didn't need you, and here I am. This is the result. This is where I am because this is what I've done. And he says, Lord, I've not depended on your strength. I've sinned, and what I need is you to realign me and put me in a place where I'm once again dependent upon your resources because my own resources are bankrupt. Now let me show you this from the text. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Would you change me from within? And renew a steadfast spirit in me. That word renew should resonate in your mind. I want you to renew me. I want you to change me. I want you to change my thinking, change my heart. And what I want is a steadfast spirit. Literally, firmly established. Literally, I don't want this cup to move. And he's saying, Lord, please forgive me for my sin and don't let me wander from you again. Rather, fix me, establish me, hold me flat so that I'm in a place where I receive your resources and live the way you want me to live. And then he says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence. Sin separates us from God. Not in an eternal sense, if we're in Christ, but in a family sense. And he's saying, Lord, I've acted independently of you. I've abandoned you. Forgive me. Don't abandon me. 
Don't kiss, cast me away from your presence. I know that you can't look on sin. I know that you can't look favorably when I do wickedly. When I disobey you, I know that that interrupts my fellowship with you, that there's a fracture in our relationship. The same David who wrote Psalm 51 wrote Psalm 16, In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever, but what I've done is I've cut myself off from your joy. I've cut myself off from your resources. And then he says this, most interesting, verse 11. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Hmm. Now, in the Old Testament, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Seventeen times in the Old Testament, seventeen different examples, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person to empower him for a specific ministry assignment, for a specific responsibility. He would come on them in a way that would be different than how he came upon everybody else to empower them for obedience. But the way that he came upon a person differed from today. And such was the example of Saul. Now Saul would have been a vivid reminder in David's mind because he saw, David, or he saw Saul the king blow it. He saw the Holy Spirit depart from Saul because of his sin. And now what's dawned on his mind is the awful reality that my sin could possibly mean that God's going to cut me off from the resources and the ministry that he's called me to. He says, I don't want that. I saw Saul, and I saw him fall on his sword and die. I don't want that. I want to be brought back. I want you to bring me back to the joy of my salvation. I want you to use me. I want you to make me steadfast. I don't want to end up like that guy. I saw what happened, God, when you take your hand off. And I don't want that. Now, in the New Testament, by way of application, do we lose the Holy Spirit when we're saved? Talk to me. No, we don't. But can we quench the Spirit? Yeah. Can we forfeit the ministry and the resources of the Spirit of God that flow into our life? Absolutely, by our sin. And so by way of application, we too can say, Lord, don't leave me to myself. Don't leave me to my flesh. Don't leave me to the resources of my own strength because I'll die. I'll die. I need you, Lord. I need you. And so I want you to restore the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to restore joy. I want you to bring me back into the kind of fellowship and the relationship that we can have. I want you to restore me to that because salvation with you is great. He didn't say, I want you to restore me to salvation. It's not like, okay, Lord, I need to pray the prayer again. That's not, that's not the idea. The idea is you worked in my heart and brought me to repentance, and now our relationship can be, again, what it should be. And beloved, the relationship can't be what it should be until the sin is taken out. And so any, anybody that claims to have a true relationship with God that's walking in sin is deceived. You've got to read sometime Psalm 32. Um, it's David's rejoicing. It's the joy of his salvation recovered. Um, it's what he wrote right after he wrote Psalm 51. But there's one other nugget in Psalm 51 that I want to show you with regard to this point. It's verse 8. He says, Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Now, if you were here last week, you heard John Richard. And John and I were talking and, uh, about the illustration of the sheep and the shepherd. That when a sheep wanders, and when a sheep is constantly straying and constantly going after poisonous bushes and berries and constantly wandering near cliffs or, or wild animals or, or places that they'll get stuck or cut up, they're always, for their own, for their own uh, damage, walking away. And what the shepherd has, actually has to, does, uh, has to do is take the sheep and break his legs. Isn't that, isn't that tough? Break his legs, four legs. 
And what happens is the sheep is lying there on the ground. And the sheep has no resources whatsoever. He can't get up, he can't walk, he can't do anything. He's totally dependent upon the shepherd. And what the shepherd has to do is he has to reach up and he has to bear up under that sheep and he has to put him over his shoulders and carry him. And if he is going to be fed, the shepherd actually has to get down on a knee and lower him down and has to put his little mouth on the grass. And if he's going to get something to drink, he's got to, he's got to pick up the sheep and he's got to lower him down into the water. You know what lesson that sheep learns? To depend totally on the shepherd for everything. And you know what happens? That sheep never wanders again. That sheep, because he's developed such an intimacy with the shepherd and such a dependence upon the shepherd, stays right by his side. And what David is saying, I'm so glad you broke my legs. I'm so glad you put me on my knees by breaking my legs. And let those bones which are now healed rejoice because you've brought me to a place of dependence upon you. That's what he's saying. And that's true repentance. And so he says at the end of verse 12, sustain me with a willing spirit. So sustain me now. You, you, you've turned me back up. Now, now keep me there and sustain me. I want to be steadfast. And I just got to stop and ask, friends, is this, is this you? Is this characteristic of your prayer life? Is this how you respond when you sin? Number five. True repentance ascends to serve. True repentance ascends to serve. Look at verse 13. Look at what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And what he's saying here is now that, now that you've realigned me, now you've set me up in the right place, and now I'm depending upon you. I'm not going to sit here and wallow in the mire of my sin and my guilt. You've forgiven me, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to be used by you. I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you work in my life. And the goal is, is I'm going I'm to go after other sinners. You're a great and forgiving God, and you've forgiven me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go after the rest of the people that I see doing the same things. I'm going to go after the people that are doing the same. And I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them and warn them about the dangers of sin and hiding it against God. I'm going to tell them about the grace of God and the mercy of God that's available. And God has broken me, and now I'm going to be used of him to warn people against the deadly effects of sin. Remember Peter on the beach? Broken, repentant, follow me. Peter, you know what I want you to do now? I want you to feed my sheep. You're in the right position to do that, Peter, because you're not trusting in yourself. You're not relying on your own strength. You're relying on me and me alone. And I'm not going to sit there in the pile of ashes sulking. I'm going to get up and be about God's business. And let me just qualify for just a second. That doesn't mean necessarily that God is going to put you in the same position that you were. Because you can be disqualified. But you and I are always qualified to speak about sin. You and I are always qualified to warn people about the dangers that are in sin. Number six. True repentance awakens worship. Look at verse 14. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips, O Lord, that I may declare your praise. Here's a guy that he started the psalm, Oh God, I want you to forgive me. I want you to be merciful to me. I'm a wretched sinner against you and you only. I've sinned. And now what he says is, I'm come worshiping. I'm coming to worship. Sin closes a worshiping mouth. And a humble and repentant heart is a true worshiping heart. Listen to this. A healthy worship life will keep you from a poor confession life. 
And a, poor, and a good confession life will keep you from a poor worship life. Let me say that again. A healthy worship life will keep you from a poor confession life. And a good confession life will keep you from a poor worship life. And look at verse 16, what he says. The issue is not sacrifice. You don't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Now, what he's saying is here is, is, God, if that's all you expected of me, that I would just go into the temple and I would slaughter a lamb for my sin, and that'd be, that's not what you want. That's not what you're after. What you're after is true heart change. That's what he says in verse 17. The sacrifices of God, what you really want, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, that's what you won't despise. And so a heart that's truly repentant before God is a worshiping heart. David's just echoing what Amos said, that I hate your festivals and I don't delight in your assemblies because you bring them in sin. God wants our hearts and then he wants our sacrifices. So confession is worship. Now, behind me, Dave's going to put up a song we sang a few minutes ago. And I want you to think along David's thoughts as you think about these words, okay? Lord, I come to you. This is David. I come, let my heart be changed, renewed, flowing from the grace that I've found in you that's been activated now in my heart. And Lord, I've come to know the weaknesses that I see in me. And I know that all of that will be stripped away by the power of your love, your loving kindness. I want you to hold me close. I want you to let your love surround me. I want you to bring me near because sin has broken and severed that fellowship. And I want you to draw me to your side. And as I wait, I'm going to rise up like the eagle and I'll soar with you. God, you've given me wings. Your spirit leads me on in the power of your love. Do you, can you imagine the worship that David is expressing? Can you imagine what goes through a person's mind like this who is worshiping God, who has been forgiven of their sins and said, Oh God, the power, your love means so much more to me than it ever did. And I worship you. Finally, true repentance abhors sin's consequences. Abhors sin's consequences. If you want another word besides abhors, hates. True repentance hates sin's consequences. Verse 18. And you kind of read this and you wonder, why is this in here? By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, in the whole burnt offering, and then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This is what he's saying. He's saying, my sin has consequences. And it's very possible, as was in the case of Saul, is one of the number of cases of all kinds of leaders who've fallen, that there are consequences that are going to be so far-reaching and so destructive that they're going to keep other people from you. It's very possible that people will be distracted in their worship. It's very possible that people aren't going to want to follow you. They're going to mock you. They're going to say, David, your God is a, is a consuming God, an awesome God, a faithful God. Sure, man after God's own heart. And what he's saying is, he's not saying, oh, Lord, I, I, I don't like the consequences, so take it away, because he knows that consequences are a necessary part of God's training. What he's saying is, God, I deserve whatever I get, and what's happened to me has resulted in consequences, and I don't want my sin to have such damaging effects on people. Lord, will you please do good to Jerusalem? Will you please build the walls? And you remember that David's sin did have consequences, didn't it? Death of a baby. Murder rape, betrayal, conspiracy, all in the kingdom, never left the kingdom in the rest of David's life, and a son, Solomon, who followed his example into sin. God will forgive, but he might not remove the consequences. And I just want to stop this morning and ask you, where are you at?
Where's your heart before God? Is this you? Is this you before your king? Do you confess? Do you have... What is your confession life? And I'm asking myself, what is my confession life like? Do you ponder sin's consequences? Are you a, are you a Nathan? Repentance is not some horrible damper to your spiritual life. Repentance isn't something that, oh, I hate it when they talk about that. Repentance is the key that unlocks your Christian life and lets you live in a way that's pleasing to God because it removes the sin that interrupts the fellowship. Where are you at? I'd encourage you to take this afternoon and ponder that. And if you want, over here to our right, we have a counseling room. One of our elders will be there to talk with you. Maybe you've never repented in your entire life and you want to be saved. Maybe it would be that you've been in a pattern of sin and you want some help. We're here. We want to help. Let's pray. Father, we trust that our look into your word this morning has been a good look. We trust that you will remove those things that keep us from knowing and loving and enjoying you that our sin is an obstacle that stands in the way, but, oh God, may you remove it. And may you make us a man after your own heart. We'll never be perfect, but we can be aligned. Give grace to each of the hearers, I pray in Jesus' name, starting with me. Amen. You're dismissed.